Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for this uh, live stream. Uh, this is uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and you'll notice if you look at the background behind me, you may notice something different. I'm not at the pulpit there in uh, Plum Creek Chapel. There's no uh, cross that's usually behind me on the stage there. And that's because uh, we're dealing with some pretty nasty Arctic cold weather uh, here in our region, like much of the country, actually. And uh, it was minus 8 degrees outside this morning on my uh, thermometer, and wind is blowing pretty well. Uh, the wind chills, they're saying, could be up to minus 30 out here. Uh, so we decided uh, it would probably be best not to encourage people to venture out in that dangerous cold weather. So we're doing this by live stream only. It's always a little bit difficult to kind of preach to the camera uh, when you're used to preaching in front of a a crowd, but uh, that's okay. I mean, I, I got to thinking about it, and no one really ever laughs at my jokes anyway, so it's usually silence, and so that part's no different. So uh, anyway, thanks for joining us, and uh, let's jump in uh, as we continue our uh, study of First Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn along with us, we'll be in First Thessalonians, the first chapter, uh, picking up where we left off last week. Now, you know, I, I love popcorn. My family knows I absolutely love popcorn, especially when we're watching a movie or a football game. It's one of my favorite snacks. And back in the day, many of you will remember this, before microwave popcorn, you know, you'd have to get out a large saucepan or soup pot, add some oil and pour in the kernels and then put the lid on and then you'd kind of shake the pan over the burner and wait for the popcorn to pop. The whole process was was long, longer than it is today with microwave popcorn, but it was worth it. Uh, today, of course, it takes about three minutes when you put that bag of popcorn in the microwave. But when you stop and think about it, popcorn is pretty interesting. You know, it pops due to an explosion of moisture. Every kernel has moisture inside it. And when you subject it to heat by uh, either heating up oil around it or, let's say, putting it in a microwave, that moisture heats up, creating steam. And then the steam collects inside the shell of the popcorn and presses against that shell until the shell can't withstand the pressure anymore. And then it pops open, splitting open the shell. And what uh, used to be a small, hard, inedible little object has now increased in size and become soft and fluffy and desirable. In fact, when popcorn pops, it, it's hard to even find the old shell. There are little pieces of it, usually at the bottom of the bowl. The old outward appearance is now dominated by the inside characteristics. Did you know God has placed down inside every believer something that is ready to come out? It's called the new man, the new nature. Now, Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, a lot of people will quote that verse and say, see, you're supposed to be acting new. You're supposed to be behaving differently. You're supposed to be a new creature. After all, the old King James said creature. Um, but the reality is this verse is talking about that internal new man. And uh, as we've said many times, and we're going to reiterate again today, the outward appearance of a believer does not always reflect the new nature uh, within, but it certainly should. When the Holy Spirit begins to cook, as it were, our new nature, uh, so that the steam of the new life rises and presses against that outer shell called the body, then we begin to, to pop. We, we begin to look and act and talk and walk differently. 
because the change occurring on the inside of us, the moment we place our faith in Christ, begins to show up on the outside. Paul talks about this process frequently in his letters, for example, in Ephesians and Colossians. Here in Ephesians 4, he says you know, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice that word righteousness. Again, when we get saved, we are positionally righteous in Christ. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for your sins, God's own Son, who paid our sin debt, died, rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offers to everyone freely the gift of eternal life. And when you place your faith in Him instantly, you are justified, is the biblical term. You're declared positionally righteous. And that new man takes up residence within you, and it's created in God, created according to God in true righteousness. And that true righteousness is supposed to shine forth on the outside. This process is called transformation. Transformation. Uh, I hope you're being transformed. Uh, every believer should be. In fact, Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That word transformed is the Greek word metamorpho, metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis in English, and it's simply the process of change, changing into something beautiful, something better. But this process of transformation is not automatic. It requires yielding to the Holy Spirit on our part. If you take that popcorn that you put in oil and you take it off the burner, then it's not going to get hot enough to produce popped corn. Uh, you've got there's a dynamic relationship between our new nature and the Holy Spirit working in tandem. And as we yield to the Holy Spirit, then the transformation process takes place. You know, we, we talked about last week how, how this process is not automatic, and we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and remember, verse 10 said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we talked about this uh, uh, henna clause and the subjective mood and how I mean subjunctive mood and how this means that it's not guaranteed but it's intended it's the intended result of the new nature that we should produce outward good works that's God's divine design but again it's not guaranteed you've heard me say often that our practical behavior should reflect our position in Christ here's what I'm talking about uh, this is the chart. You've seen me use this before. But on the left, we've got positional righteousness, which is justification, which happens the moment you get saved. You're declared righteous. On the right, we've got our sanctification process, the progressive sanctification process reflected in our practical righteousness. So justification rescues us from sin's penalty, but sanctification rescues us from sin's power. The more set apart we are, uh, to the image of Christ by yielding to the Holy Spirit, walking in the Holy Spirit, then the more our 
uh, practical righteousness will, will reflect our positional righteousness, our new nature in Christ. So again, justification occurs at a moment in time, instantly, when we believe the gospel, when faith meets the gospel. Practical righteousness, sanctification, occurs at various points in time as we walk in the Spirit. Uh, and so the positional righteousness over here on the left is what we commonly refer to as our salvation. And on the right, this is what we commonly call our discipleship. And we're going to be talking about that as we look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, 1. But the goal here is for our practice in life to reflect our position in Christ. That's the goal. And so you can see why when someone's practice in life does not reflect their position in Christ, uh, they're not acting like a believer. They don't look like a believer. And so sometimes people will hastily say, oh, well, they must not be a believer. Well, not so fast. They could be a believer, but they could be simply not walking in the Spirit so that the new nature comes out and the transformation process is taking place. So as we continue our look at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, we pick up the text in verse 6. And uh, just by way of review, remember Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians in the summer of 51 AD from Corinth while he was uh, on his second missionary journey with his traveling party and uh, Silas and uh, Timothy and others. And uh, so he's writing back to these believers that he had just uh, won to the Lord a few uh, months earlier, and uh, he's just encouraging them. And he extols the virtues of these young Thessalonian believers like we began to look at uh, last week. And so verses 6 through 10, I think, give us a testimony of transformation. What does a transformed life look like? And I see eight characteristics here. You know, as you as, you, as we go through Paul's letter here, uh, a lot of times he's so methodical, so theological, so doctrinal, uh, polemical, you might say, that he, you know, there's going to be multiple points because he's, he's laying out an argument and defending that argument multiple ways. So here in this first chapter, he's talking about how grateful he is and thankful he is that these young believers who got saved not too long ago were in fact growing in the Lord and acting like uh, you know, new believers. And so uh, I know, uh, you know, these next few messages are, might have multiple points, but we'll try to go through them uh, quickly. But here we're going to see this morning in these five verses, what does a transformed life look like? Eight characteristics. And the first one is a transformed Christian follows Christ. Follows Christ. Now think back to uh, what we said a moment ago with this, uh, you know, chart here. When you get saved, that's what we commonly call salvation, although salvation, the term in Scripture, is used of a variety of things, not just eternal salvation. But theologically speaking, we talk about salvation in the sense of positional righteousness. But after you get saved, then the process shifts to discipleship, and the goal is to follow Christ. And so a transformed Christian follows Christ. Let's look at verse 6 here. He says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. Let's just stop there. Uh, this word followers, it's not the normal word for follow that you normally think of when you read about discipleship, but it has the same idea. Uh, it's the word uh, mimetes, mimetes. It, it's used seven times in the New Testament, and you might be able to tell from the sound of it, it's where we get our English word mimic. The lexical definition is one who is like another, an imitator, mimetes, 
mimetes. And so, uh, again, back to our text, he says, Paul's description of these young converts as uh, mimetai, the plural, uh, implies that they're uh, that they were following him. It's not in English. We use the word mimic in, in sort of a belittling way. It, it's it's uh, it's kind of artificial or insincere. Oh, you're just mimicking me. You know, like a child would mimic someone else. No, no. In Greek, it it has the idea of faithfulness and allegiance. And uh, Paul is commending them because they were, in fact, true followers in every sense of the word. Paul uses this word, as I said, seven times. Uh, it's used in 1 Corinthians when he says, I urge you to imitate me. He goes on in that same letter to say, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. We're supposed to be allegiant and faithful and following Christ. In Ephesians, Paul said, therefore, be imitators of God. Same word. Follow God's word. That's that new nature within us, prompting us, convicting us, leading us, guiding us. And, and we are to follow that. Uh, you know, a lot of times you'll hear... Uh, people say something like, well, the Lord told me this, or the Lord spoke to me. I, I got an email uh, this past week from someone upset that I had said something positive about a Christian teacher who uses that terminology. And, you know, so I had to clarify with this person, look, a lot of times it comes down to semantic. We understand that there is no new revelation today. God's Word is the sum total of His revelation. We don't have any new authoritative, infallible voice of God speaking from atop the mountain, and we need to open up our printing presses and add a 67th book of the Bible. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, and He absolutely speaks to our heart through conviction, through uh, prompting, through leading, through guiding, uh, all kinds of things. And those are the ministries of the Holy Spirit that the Word of God itself says. Now, the Spirit of God is never going to encourage us to do something that's contrary to the Word of God. And even the Spirit's leading is not type, some type of new revelation that we've got to add to the Bible. But it, it's not in and of itself wrong to use the terminology, God spoke to my heart. Okay, words mean things. And certainly when I say that, I'm not talking about revelatory information. I'm just saying the Spirit of God is working with the new nature within me and leading and guiding me in a certain way. And, and hopefully, if I'm obedient, I will yield to that. Ephesians 5.18 talks about how we ought to yield uh, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6. We're not sure Paul uh, wrote this a letter, but this is one of the seven usages of mimetes. He says, uh, talking to that later first century Jewish audience who had begun to drift away from the Lord, uh, he says, you know, be, do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, to imitate is to follow the example of, and a transformed believer uh, is going to follow Christ. That's the essence of discipleship, following Christ's example. Remember, not all Christians are disciples, and not all disciples are Christians. I've talked before about how there are three types of disciples listed in the Bible. You've got the curious followers of Christ who were not saved. They never believed the gospel, yet they followed Christ. They were just curious. Judas falls into this category, and we see this also in uh, other passages in John's gospel, for example, of whole crowds following Christ, but the text tells us they never believed in him. But there were those who followed him and believed in him. They were convinced that he indeed is the Savior. So they were saved and they were following him, but they weren't always committed. Certainly Peter 
you could not call him a follower of Christ in that snapshot of his life when he, uh, you know, denied Christ three times and cursed him. And, and any of us, when we are not yielding to the Holy Spirit and obeying the voice of the Holy Spirit in our heart, we're not, you know, committed disciples. The goal in Scripture is to be a committed disciple, someone who's not only saved, but is faithfully following Christ. And that's, that's the ideal. And so that's what I think Paul needs here when he talks about how these young believers were followers. They were followers. Number two, another example of a transformed Christian is one who welcomes God's Word, welcomes the Bible. How eagerly do you read and desire and long for God's Word? Go back to verse 6. The next phrase here, not only were they followers of the Lord, but they were having received, they received the Word in much affliction. When the Thessalonians heard the gospel during Paul's visit there, they not only believed it unto eternal life, that's always the case, it's a simple matter of faith, they heard the gospel, they were convicted of their sin and their need for a Savior, so they believed it. And when they believed it, they became saved. But Paul describes here something more than that. Not only did they believe the gospel unto eternal life, but they enthusiastically welcomed everything Paul taught, the whole counsel of God. See, there are two words in the New Testament that are translated in English, receive. One of them is decamai, and one of them is lombano. Uh, the word decamai is what's used here, and it means to welcome or embrace. The word lombano simply means to take possession of. It says nothing about the attitude involved in uh, doing so. And again, to get saved, it's simply a matter of taking possession of the gift that's offered to you. You don't have to believe the gospel a certain way. Uh, there are false teachers out there that suggest if you didn't cry or if you were not broken, if you didn't make a promise to God to turn from all your sins, if you weren't serious and somber and you didn't realize this was some kind of a very serious commitment and con you know, a, you know, contract that you were signing, then you can't really be saved. You've got to receive the gospel the right way, they say. Wrong. The Bible says it's simply lambano, receiving, John 1, 12. If you receive the gift, you're saved. And, and Paul makes that clear uh, elsewhere, but here he's not necessarily giving a theological treatise on the manner in which we receive the gospel. He's just describing the fact that in their case, they not only took possession of it, they welcomed and embraced it. In fact, we see this explicitly stated in the very next chapter. Uh, when we get there, we'll talk about this, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Listen to what Paul says. Very interesting. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, lambano, when you took possession of eternal life simply by believing the gospel, which you heard from us, he goes on to add the clarification that you also welcomed it, decamai. You embraced and enthusiastically and eagerly were excited about it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And so a transformed believer is going to be one who is excited about the Word of God and welcomes the Word of God. Like James, the Lord's brother, describes here in James chapter 1, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word. That word receive there is decamai. Same one Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians to describe how they welcomed and embraced the Word of God. Notice James says here, 
the Word of God's already implanted in your heart. You're already believers, and he's described them beautifully previously in chapter 1 here as those who have been born from above. Uh, they're definitely brothers in Christ. They're believers. But he's saying that implanted Word that's in you, you need to welcome and embrace it because it's able to save your souls. Now, people get confused about the English word soul, but remember the Bible wasn't written in English. The word soul in Greek, psuche, just means life. In fact, frequently it's used to speak of the physical life, life and death and, and health and uh, you know sickness and those types of things. So what he's saying here, and this is a key principle within James, we touched on this last week when we looked at chapter 2 in James as a cross-reference, but James is challenging these believers that, look, you may be saved by faith, you may have received uh, the implanted word, taken possession of eternal life, but if you're not going to yield to the inner working of the new man and, and live that righteousness out in your life, then you're toying with death because sin kills. He goes on to say in this very chapter that sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. <clears throat> so he's saying to these uh, to his audience, which was the dispersed Jews from Jerusalem who had gotten saved on the day of Pentecost early on in the church age here, he's saying, look, you need to welcome and embrace that implanted word, and it'll save your lives. It'll it'll keep you alive. If you keep toying with, uh, you know, uh, if you keep, you know, toying with the uh, uh, the the whole uh, uh, sin, you know, old man, and live out the old man, and and so forth, uh, then uh, you know you're going to be um, playing with death. Sin is an equal opportunity killer, uh, as I've said. Uh, so, and then we could go on in James, this is fascinating, he says, therefore be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, uh, he, he is like a man who observes his natural face in the mirror. That word natural face there means the face of your birth, and he's just described them as being born uh, from above. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, he's talking about the new nature. You look at the mirror, you see what you're supposed to be, you see the new man, but you walk away and forget what you look like and you start living like the devil. You start living like the old man. By contrast, if you look into the perfect law of liberty and continue in it because you've welcomed and embraced it, then this one will be blessed in what he does. And a transformed believer is one who uh, welcomes the word of God. Number three, a transformed Christian is one who is joyful. <laughs> Because the fruit of the Spirit is joy, one of them, uh, then when the new nature overflows to the outside, it's going to be joyful. Uh, are you joyful? <laughs> uh, listen to what he says in the third part of verse 6. You received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. True joy can only come from the Holy Spirit. It's the Greek word kara. And we see that again and again as a description of the believer. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, you know, uh, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. Kara, joy. It's inseparably lied, uh, tied to the new life in Christ. In fact, you can't have joy. Uh, the world doesn't offer joy apart from Christ. It might offer temporal pleasure, and it might make you smile, but it's not going to be true inner joy. The early church experienced this early on. Uh, for example, in Acts chapter 5, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Remember when Peter and John were called before the Sanhedrin and rebuked because they were preaching the gospel. And uh, 
they said, look, we can't help but preach. That's, that's, our, that's our task. And later on, in the first missionary journey, <clears throat> in the persecution at uh, Antioch of Pisidia up there in southern Galatia, after they were persecuted, they shook the dust off their feet and came to Iconium, and the disciples were, what, filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. That's a theme of Philippians. Remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote that. In fact, in the end of 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 5, we find the shortest verse in the Bible. Paul tells these Thessalonians, rejoice always. A lot of people say, oh no, the, the shortest verse in the Bible is John 11.35, Jesus wept. Well, in English, Jesus wept is fewer letters than rejoice always. But remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And the Greek word, uh, <clears throat> the Greek verse here has two words, whereas John 11.35, Jesus wept has three words because it has the definite article before Jesus. So this is a truly the shortest verse in the Bible, rejoice always, joy. <clears throat> so number four, <clears throat> not only does a transformed believer show joy, but he also sets an example for other believers. How often do you think about what others see in you? You ever think about it? <clears throat> Are you setting an example? This transformation? Uh, we read on in verse 7, he says, They became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Other Christians learned from them. Now, that word examples here is interesting. <clears throat> It's used 16 times in the New Testament. It's the Greek word tupos. Tupos, it's where we get the idea of a type, the concept of a type. Maybe you've studied typology in Scripture. Well, it comes from this word. It, it means literally a mark or impress <clears throat> or stamp or the effect of a blow. It's, it's like a statue or an idol or a model or, or an example as it's translated uh, here. For example, we see in Romans 5, Paul compares Adam and Christ, and he says Adam was a type of Christ, a tupos of Christ. Christ is the second Adam, and he pays the penalty for our sins. Or Thomas, after the resurrection, when he was doubting that Jesus had in fact rose from the dead, he said, unless I see his hand in his hands <clears throat> the print of the nails, that word print is the word tupos. Boy, that, that's a great word picture, isn't it? The nails left a mark. And so when Thomas looked <clears throat> at his hands, our Lord's hands, he saw the imprint that the nails had left. And the new nature should leave a mark on us so that when people look at us outwardly, they see a transformation taking place. The, the, the transformed Christian sets the example for others. That's what he says. These believers were so transformed that they actually looked like Christ in the way they behaved. Number five, not only does a transformed Christian set an example for other believers, but he or she proclaims the Word of God. <clears throat> proclaims the Word of God. How often do you talk about the Bible? How often do you quote Scripture? Are you proclaiming the Word of God? These believers were Verse 8, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. 
Again, this word sounded forth, it's one uh, word in Greek. It's interesting. I know we're looking at a lot of Greek, but Paul is very intentional about the words that he uses, often even creating his own combination of words. We have, uh, it's called neologism, when you create a new word. Paul is, is famous for that. Uh, this is not one of those cases, but it is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Uh, to sound forth is ex ekeo. Ex ekeo. It's a compound word, ex, the prefix out from, and ekeo, meaning repeat a sound. Uh, repeat a sound. So it's to repeat something out from its source. It's to reverberate or ring out or resound. If you go back to the text, these believers talked often and loudly about the Word of God that they had come face to face with when Paul and Silas and others shared the gospel with them. And they believed it. They welcomed and embraced it. They were living it out. And they were so excited about the good news that they had been saved by grace through faith that they wanted to tell others. They sounded it forth. And that's exactly what a transformed believer does. I wonder if Paul had this idea in mind when at the end of his life, he told Timothy in the last letter that he wrote, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. The word preach here is a different word, uh, obviously, since I mentioned that exekeo is, is the only time it's ever used is there in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. But same idea. And, and, and Paul knew that Timothy was on fire for the Lord. And uh, he told him to stir up that gift and to preach the word. And that's what a transformed believer does. He talks about the word of God with others. And of course, to talk about it, you've got to be familiar with it. You've got to hide that word in your heart and memorize scripture. Number six, a transformed believer exhibits great faith. A transformed believer exhibits great faith. How strong is your faith? You know, it only takes faith the size of a mustard seed to get saved. It's not the kind of faith that saves you. It's the content of faith. Have you believed the right thing? Is it, it's the object. When faith meets the gospel, you're born again instantly. You're justified. But as a believer, our faith can waver, no question about it. The, Jesus often uh, rebuked the disciples for their weak faith or their lack of faith. The Bible talks about rich faith and poor faith, strong faith and weak faith, wavering faith and strong faith, all kinds of adjectives that can be just, you know, applied to the believer's faith. And these young Thessalonian believers were exhibiting great faith. And by the way, when I say young, I don't mean they were, uh, you know, biologically young, physically young. They were just, they had only been saved for a few months, so they were spiritually young. Uh, but look at verse 8 again. He says, your faith toward God has gone out. So we don't even need to say anything. Faith. Faith. The Bible defines faith for us in Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And in this great uh, hall of faith, we call it, the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, uh, Paul says, the elder, or the writer of Hebrews says, the elders obtained a good testimony because of their faith. It's exactly what these Thessalonians were doing. They were exhibiting great faith, and therefore they had an incredible testimony of transformation. And, and you go back through uh, Hebrews 11, and we find, you know, all kinds of examples of great men and women of faith. You know, we've got Abraham, uh, we, we, we've got Moses. Uh, you know, all kinds of examples of uh, the patriarchs and matriarchs of, of the faith. And, and, and the writer in Hebrews, anyway, who may well have been Paul, is, is going through them as a motivation to say, you know, be like them, <laughs> right? These uh, Thessalonian believers showed great 
faith. It reminds me of the conversation that Jesus had with the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 when a Gentile uh, trusted in Jesus to heal uh, his, I think it was his servant, or his, maybe it was his son. But anyway, Jesus commends this Gentile and says, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He was sort of highlighting the lack of faith of the self-righteous, pious Jewish leaders in his day, the, the scribes and the Pharisees who were far from the Lord. They were legalistically dotting their I's and crossing their T's, but they were not, uh, you know, uh, exhibiting faith. And so he, he, he highlights the great faith of this Gentile. Paul says we should walk by faith and not by sight. And that's really the essence of the Christian life. It's to not look at what we can see, but to live by faith, to trust the inner promptings of the Holy Spirit and live it out so that our practical righteousness reflects our positional righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. <laughs> right? It really helps you keep things in perspective. Paul told the Colossians here in one of his uh, prison epistles, uh, since we were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. That's really the walk of faith. And these believers not only had faith to believe the gospel, but they were living it out and exhibiting great faith. Number seven, um, a transformed Christian serves God. Now, this is more than meets the eye here with this idea of service. But uh, who, who do you serve? Who are you serving ultimately? Why do you do what you do? Listen to what he says in verse 9. Uh, they themselves, talking about the, those in the surrounding areas, testify uh, concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Uh, and, and, and in other words, they understand how you responded to our message when we got there. And notice they, they saw how you turned to God from idols. And by the way, that is, in essence, faith. Faith, by definition, is abandoning whatever else you were trusting in and shifting that trust to Jesus Christ. That's saving faith. Trusting in Jesus alone. It's faith alone in Christ alone. So you can't be trusting in Jesus to save you and trusting in the church to save you or the seven sacraments to save you or your good works to save you or your baptism to save you at the same time. It's an exclusive faith. So that's exactly what these Thessalonians exhibited. They turned to God from idols that they had believed in, and they were trusting in Christ, abandoning their faith in anything else they thought could save them. Uh, but the key word here is the word serve. It's the Greek word euleo. Uh, you may have heard of the noun doulos, but it means to be subject to, to be allegiant to. We have sort of downplayed the significance of service these days uh, by, you know, service projects and, you know, serving at the, you know, food pantry or the clothing pantry, you know, clothing store or whatever. Uh, and all that is great. And we certainly should do that. But this word serve here has a little bit of heavier connotation because we're talking about serving the living and true guide. It's God. It's who are you allegiant to? It's often translated bond servant. Uh, who are you allegiant to? Who are you 
serving? Now that's the question. And then we get to number eight, and I'll review all of these here in just a moment. But a transformed Christian anticipates the rapture. So I mentioned last week that the theme of Thessalonians is waiting for the return of Christ. Every chapter touches on the rapture. It's in chapter 4 that we get the explicit blow-by-blow detailed account of the doctrine of the rapture, though it's alluded to earlier in the Bible uh, in uh, the upper room when Jesus talks about it. This is where God, under the inspiration of the Spirit, chose to or using the inspiration of the Spirit, chose to reveal it to Paul, and we get the, the details about it. But here... It's uh, alluded to at the end of uh, chapter uh, 1, or at least here in, in verse 10, rather. Uh, he says, uh, which is the end. Sorry, I'm losing. I'm already looking ahead to next week. Yeah. So ch- 10 verses here in chapter 1. So at the very end of chapter 1, in fact, at the end of each chapter, he's going to touch on the rapture a little bit. He, he's, he talks about how not only did these early Thessalonians uh, turn to God so that they could serve him, but they turned to God so that they could wait for his return, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you looking for the return of Christ? That's what transformation looks like. That's one of the qualities of transportation. They turn to God to wait for his Son from heaven, to wait for his Son from heaven. They were anticipating the rapture. Paul had, we know he had taught them about the rapture when he was with them, because he tells us that in chapter 4. Uh, and uh, so they had already been taught that, and they were excited about it. They believed not only the gospel that saves them from the penalty of sin, but they also believed the promise of the return of Christ to rescue them before the wrath of God. We're going to talk about the wrath of God in a moment, but this is one of the marks of a mature believer, is uh, you know to eagerly wait for the Savior. Paul told the Philippians, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. So right now we're being transformed spiritually so that our behavior, our attitudes, our conduct uh, reflect the new man. But someday the very physical body, our very flesh and bones will be transformed and put on the new nature and put on the new man, if you will, uh, the glorified uh, body. That's what Paul talks about in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, when the dead in Christ will rise first, then we are caught up together with them. First Corinthians 15 says, we will not all die, but we will all be changed because flesh and blood, he goes on to say in chapter 15 of First Corinthians, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul here in, in Philippians says, you know, we also eagerly wait for our Savior who will complete the transformation as it were. That transformation starts on earth as we yield to the Holy Spirit, but it will reach its consummation when this mortal puts on immortality, when this uh, uh, corruption, uh, this corruptible puts on incorruption, and so forth. But let's go back to the text. What will Jesus do when he returns at the rapture? He says, he, whom he, you know, uh, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, this is very, very important. The Bible speaks of God's wrath in two ways. We've got soteriological wrath and eschatological wrath. Now, I know those are big, you know, $5 words, but it's really pretty simple. Soteriological, that's the Greek word soterios. It means saved. It's talking about our eternal salvation from the penalty of sin. And uh, soteriological wrath relates to our individual salvation. Eschatological wrath points to the future 
deals with the end times, eschatology. Eschaton is the Greek word for last things, the end of things, right? So one type of wrath is the wrath that all people are born under until they're removed from that soteriological wrath by faith. For example, in John 3, 36, uh, we read, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's that soteriological wrath. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, you will never face the wrath of God soteriologically. You are not under the wrath of God. You're a child of God, not a child of wrath, right? So that's the first way the Bible uses wrath. But there's also a Bible prophecy implication to wrath, an eschatological context to that. And that is that future seven-year period that is variously referred to as the day of wrath. Uh, for example, Zephaniah, referring to that final seven years prior to when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, that's called the day of wrath, the day of trouble and distress, the day of devastation and desolation, the day of darkness and gloominess, the day of clouds and thick darkness. Revelation chapter 6, when the first seals are opened, it's the outpouring of God's wrath. Remember in verses or chapters 4 and 5, they're wondering who is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath. Well, Jesus Christ is because he shed his blood. And when he opens those seals, the wrath is poured out. And by the end of chapter 6, the people on earth are crying out, the wrath of the Lamb has come, the great day of his wrath has come. That's eschatological wrath. So if you look at it on an end times chart, uh, it's this seven-year period right here in the middle, the wrath of God. It's, it's the same thing as the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, and so on and so forth. So Paul brings up this promise that the Christian will not have to face the wrath of God again in this letter, not just here in verse 10, but later on in chapter 5, when he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain deliverance. Salvation there means deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be delivered from the future wrath of God that will be poured out on earth. And that's what verse 10 says. The believer anticipates the rapture, is looking for the return of the Lord. That's what a transformed Christian looks like. I really think this is one of the least common characteristics of believers today. Most Christians are not looking for the rapture. And that means their transformation is incomplete. They're not fully submitting and yielding to the Holy Spirit. They're not being uh, transformed. So transformation, transformation, it's, it's what's inside you showing forth on the outside, like we talked about with the, the kernel of corn. Well, is what's inside you showing forth on the outside? Are you yielding to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit so that the new nature bursts through and shines for all the world to see. That's what these believers in Thessalonica were doing. They, they have a powerful testimony of transformation. They were following Christ, welcoming God's word. They were joyful. They were setting an example to other believers. They were proclaiming the word of God. They were exhibiting great faith. They were serving God, and they were anticipating the rapture. Which of these 
areas need work in your own personal walk with the Lord. Until the Lord comes and, and we're topside this earth, we're supposed to be in a growth process. You know, there's no such thing as instant sanctification. We don't instantly become transformed and glorified the moment we get saved. We have to live in this sin-stricken, fallen world. Uh, we deal with the old nature. Uh, as Paul said, it's a struggle. Sometimes we do things we know we shouldn't. Sometimes we don't do things we know we should be doing. It's a process. And uh, that process should draw us closer and closer to Christ. Remember what that first point meant, mimic, uh, uh, mimetai. Uh, they were mimickers of Christ. Uh, it should draw us closer and closer to him, more and more Christ-like. And uh, some of these other characteristics, maybe though they need a little bit of work. Maybe your faith is weak. Well, trust the Lord. Read his word uh, and learn to trust him. Um, we just posted to the free section of the Not By Works online store. All of these items are free. Uh, the My No Trust Obey charts. Um, it's a key, I think, aspect of understanding how we can strengthen our faith. We've got to get to know the Lord before we can trust Him. Uh, so you might check that out at notbyworks.org. But, uh, you know, which of these areas need work in, uh, in your life? Uh, maybe some of them are better than others, but maybe you welcome the Word of God, but maybe you lack joy. Maybe you lack joy. Read some verses in the Bible about joy. Maybe you haven't been thinking about the Lord's return. Read some verses about the rapture. Um, but be transformed. And that's the takeaway today. Uh, are you being transformed? I think there are a lot of stale, stagnant believers. Their eternal home in heaven is secure. We should never doubt our eternal destiny. If we believe the gospel, we have the promise of Christ who says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So don't ever doubt your salvation. But ask yourself, are you being transformed? It's amazing what God can do with a fully sold out, on fire, transformed believer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. Even though the circumstances and setting were a bit unique, Lord, the truth of your word marches on and we can rest securely on that word, knowing that it pierces our heart like a two-edged sword that it convicts and encourages and reproves. Lord, help the Word of God to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, I pray today that you would uh, raise up more transformed uh, men and women of faith. Uh, Lord, help show us the areas in our life that need to uh, conform to the image of your Son and our Savior. And most of all, Lord, we pray if there's anyone uh, listening or watching this message uh, today that doesn't know you, Father, we pray that in simple childlike faith they would turn from anything and everything else they have been trusting in to you and place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, everyone. Lord willing, we will see you next Sunday at Plum Creek Chapel.